0: This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Randy Pope on characteristics of a healthy church. Randy is the founding pastor and the president of Life on Life Ministries at Perimeter Church in Atlanta, Georgia. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2014 General Assembly. Let's listen as Randy shares what he has identified as fundamental characteristics that contribute to church health.
1: Glad to have you here. As we, uh should have information on the seats for you to pick up to kind of walk through what I've been asked to speak on, the characteristics of a healthy church. Uh, let me begin by saying uh, I, I think very just the very subject of talking health in church is very, very important. The very fact that I have put a list together, uh, you'll find that this list is, is not a correct list. It's just a list that That helped me begin to think from my perspective, what is a healthy church? I think churches need to have something like this where they've got at least something to evaluate every year. How are we doing as a church? Because today, health is not an important thing in most people's minds. Uh, People come to your church wherever you are and they decide to join or not join, not because it's healthy, is it enjoyable? Do I like the people? Is the guy a good speaker? Does it have entertaining stuff for my children? Which doesn't necessarily mean it's a healthy church at all. And so though I certainly am a proponent of church growth, that we ought to be trying to grow the churches as large as we can grow them and so forth, that's not really the thing we're looking for. It's, that's a byproduct of being a healthy church. I've often said to our staff, I feel like I sit in a control booth of the church and there are little knobs that I've discovered and I keep discovering all the different knobs that are a part of leading church and I realize that if I turn this one the correct way and I turn that one the correct way, the church could grow as big as you wanted it to grow. But unfortunately, when you turn those knobs that particular way, that particular growth might cause us to be far less healthy as a church. So what we're looking for is that ideal where you become as healthy as possible, which takes you to the maximum growth that your church is potential to offer to the kingdom. So the growth can't be the primary target. It's got to be the health of the church. So I see churches all the time, they've got their goals for what they want to do in terms of growth. We want to grow by this many people, we want to reach this many people, we want to do this... But that's a dangerous thing. I think what you've got to do is have a plan. What is the health goal of our church? So these are basically, you know, some standards toward which we can strive and look at on a regular basis. I look at this list all the time and then try to evaluate how are we doing in these areas. So, again, these are just mine, and you would come up with different ones perhaps, and there's no correct list. But let me address some of these because they may just open up some areas of thought that are new to some of us. That will carry on a a conversation that keeps going. What I would encourage, if you find this profitable, is to take this list, create your own list, and then go before your leadership and say, let's discuss this one. How do we think we're doing in this arena? And then dig into it as far as you want to go. Okay? So I'm just going to obviously be able to spend a few minutes on each of these, and we'll do that uh, rather hurriedly. Number one, they embark on a journey of faith. I put that as a first uh, on my list because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And if anything is missing, I, I think in our churches, we, we might admit it's faith orientation, that we do so much by calculation, so much by thoughtfulness and planning, and all those things are good, but, but where is that faith element? So I was just... Searching where to go in ministry, how God would use, you know, our lives as Carol and I had now been married and looking for our call. And uh, I had an experience with a man, some of you have heard the story, with Dr. John Edmund Haggai. And I was asking him about call and direction and he said, man, you got it all wrong. You've missed the whole point. And I said, what do you mean? he said, you're talking about a career, you're talking about a job, you're talking about a, a, a particular said those aren't important he said it doesn't matter whether you go overseas or you stay in the states whether you go what people call secular to a spiritual you know employment whether you uh, whether you're parachurch or church he said those are really such secondary issues and I said there thinking what's the primary issue I have no idea where you're headed and he says the only thing that's really important is this and then it's what he said that whatever you end up doing which isn't a big issue But whatever you end up doing, that you attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to failure unless God be in it. And boy, that slapped me hard. When I heard that, I went, wow, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give my life to something that, you know, when it's all said and done, you'll say, I couldn't do that. God had to do that. It was obvious that it was beyond what I could do. Now, what that does is put you in a very uncomfortable position a lot of times. I can remember vividly where I began to, 25 years in the ministry or whatever it was, 20, 20 years, um, I, I began to, it probably wasn't that 15 years into the ministry, I began to sense a, a call to leave Perimeter Church where we'd been. And everything was, you know, moving along. But we were in the middle of a relocation project that was very big, a lot of things going on. And, uh, and I started finding myself very weepy. I started crying, which I don't cry very much. I need to cry more. And I, and I was finding myself, Carol said, what's wrong? And, you know, it would be a, appear to be a, a classic midlife crisis of some sort. But I, I told her, I said, no, I think God's calling us away from the church we love. And I'm not going to tell the whole story of how it happened, but uh, God revealed in a very, very clear way that God wasn't asking me to leave. It was I really, truly, truly believed we were going to fail in the big attempt that we were involved in called a relocation, I was absolutely thoroughly convinced it would fail. And it was going to mar my reputation and my my plan, everything. But if I left, then I could just say, who knows how it would have gone. I just left. God called me away. And I realized that time God wasn't calling me away. He was calling me to be faithful. Maybe he was calling me to experience failure. And, uh, and I remember that was a huge hurdle to say, okay, failure is okay. You know, you got to embrace the failure with the uh, things that go well. And if that be the case, that be the case. So it's a scary thing. I just went to our leadership. We're now, uh, today is our 37th uh, anniversary of being at Perimeter Church. And, and, uh, I, I remember three, four, five weeks ago, I'd spent away, uh, spent a time away planning and thinking and looking at the future and what God has for me for the next years. And, uh, so forth and, and I remember having a distinct sense that boy we need to take a, a risk a huge risk in a new direction to make us go where we need to go to the next level perimeter church and, and my immediate thought is I don't want to do that because that's very possible to fail and I'm at the end of the road I don't want to go all this time and now here I have a, end up with a big failure and so forth and I went to the leadership and I said I need to know from you guys Do you want, as we go into a transition in the years to come, do you want to play safe and know that we're stable and strong and everything's good? Or would you want me to lead you in a place that's going to be high risk, potential failure, and could leave us in the worst of all positions when that day comes that I do transition? What what do you want me to, you know? And I was so thrilled when unanimously they said, let's risk the failure, let's do it, let's go for it. And so now we're putting together the next plan and, and I'm thinking, oh, man, it would sure be easier. But there's something I've learned, I think, to fear more than failure, and that's not attempting that, which is doomed to failure, let God be in it. And that, to me, would be the worst. So I think uh, we all need to start with our leadership saying, what is the faith element of what we're doing? What does, what does God want us to do that's risky, but because we are doing it because we believe God wants to? One last thought on that. We made a commitment in our leadership the, uh, the very first year. We said we will never ask the question, Is something possible? And that's the wrong question for a Christian leadership to ever ask. Because if with God all things are possible, why would we ask, Is it possible? Uh, rather than that question, we need to ask the question, Do we believe it's the will of God? do we believe he's leading us there? Do we believe it's honored to him that he wants us to attempt it and so forth? And then the beauty of our theology comes in here to understand that we can do that which we are convinced to be the will of God. We can do it. I mean, there's no written word. Should you relocate a church or should you uh, hire these new staff or do this without... I mean, those things aren't in the scriptures. So you, you discern what you think would be the right thing. and But the... But the theological reality is that you can do that which you think to be the will of God, you can do it with right motive, and you can still fail, right? Sure, you can still fail, but be better off because of the failure. And so in that sense, we have a no-lose situation if we're just in our heart trying to do what we think God would have us to do, even if it leads us to failure. So... Uh, I I just think this whole concept of faith has got to be first and foremost with our leadership and say, are we really living in a faith element? Are we just running church now and and trying to do it again another year? Maybe the way we did it last year, let's just keep it going. No, what's the faith element to be applied, okay? If you want to pop up a hand or stop or say something or ask, feel free, okay? Number two, they choose influence over success. I was... uh, I was reading a book that I commend to, to all of you. It's uh, The Church of Irresistible Influence. It's a tremendous book um, uh, written by a fellow named Robert Lewis. And uh, though I maybe have changed the illustration a little bit, it's been so long since I read it, so if I'm not doing him justice in it, know that I may have changed it a bit. But, but I remember the story, and uh, uh, it, it, was the, it, it was the story of a of a person who moves into a coastal community and they're living on the shoreline and as they're moving in, they see the neighbor across the fence next door and they go up and they say, hey, neighbor, and uh, they meet each other and say, I'm just new here. We just moved in and I'm, I'm very curious. I look out and the water's out there and there's an island out there. It's not a very large island, but it's got a building on it. It's a very small building. What is that one little building standing out there? And the neighbor says, Well, you know, I, I'm not positive, but I think it's a church. I know this. On Sunday morning, you're going to see several little boats run out to it, and I think those are parishioners going out to their service. I don't know, but, but there's just a few boats they put out there, and they come back, and I, I, I couldn't tell you anything about the church. He said there would be what's called the isolated church. Scenario number two. Neighbor, what is that huge facility out there on that small island? That is an amazing structure. What is that? Oh, it won't take you very long around here to, to know what that is. That's the first church of the island. And uh, let me tell you, the pastor is such and such and so and so. And boy, he spoke. I don't go to church, but if you go to church, that's where you want to go to church. That is the happening place. If you're a, a people of you know significance and so forth, and in the in, that's where you go. In fact, wait till Sunday morning. I know it looks kind of quiet now, but wait till Sunday morning. It's going to blow your minds. There will be thousands of boats going out there to that island for church. Thousands upon thousands. And they come back and so forth. He says, there is the church of success. Scenario number three. Neighbor, what in the world is that facility out there on that island and that very oversized bridge for such a small island? Look at that bridge. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You won't be around here very long. You'll know about that church. That's such and such church. And, And actually, you see that bridge? You see all the traffic going over that bridge? You know what that is? That's a bridge that the church built themselves to the island so that they can constantly go to the church, get the resources, and come back and impact our community. And I'll tell you what, I don't know what we do. If that church ever left our area, we're in huge trouble as a community because of all they do in the life of the needs of our larger community here. And then he said, there's the church of influence. And so at our 25th anniversary, I remember us saying, okay, that's going to be the marked significance of our church for the future. We will now, we cannot be thought of as a church of success. It's got to be a church of influence. How are we influenced in the community in which God has placed us? So now all of our measurements of what we're trying to do and so forth, you watch how they just keep coming back to how is it influencing others. It may not even impact the growth of your church, but if it impacts the community that you're in, then that's the win you're looking for. So I think when a church finally says, you know what, let's get out of this success thinking, let's start thinking about influence, that's when the church becomes much healthier than it would be otherwise. Okay? Number three... uh, (coughs) can't read there's no light up here let's see they embrace ministries of the head heart and hand i was having lunch this was a number of years ago about the same period when we were when i read this book church of irresistible influence and um, i had uh, lunch with a a assistant staff member at probably the most noted and largest churches in the atlanta area and so forth and i never met the man and we meet for lunch and he says you know I just want to talk to you a little bit about your church. And he said, uh, I think that I am speaking well for a lot of the churches in the community because we all talk about Perimeter. And uh, it's a church that's kind of mystifying us right now. We can't figure you out. And said, there's something different about the church. And we talk about it, but we don't know what it is. And uh, you have services, like we have services, and you do that, but what is the difference? And I didn't know the difference. I, I said, I, I don't know. I can guess maybe some arenas. But I said, one thing that might be on that list is that I think if you look at church, you can see it as a, as a potential of three strands. And uh, the first strand is what I'm going to call the head. The second, I'm going to call the heart. And the third, I'm going to call the hands. And I said... As I look at church history, and may be way too simplistically, but if you go back to the days of, well, well let me just ask you. If, if we had to pick who is the, the greatest pastor in American history that you can think of, and you have to eliminate Jim Baird and Frank Barker, okay? So you've got to take them out of the mix who, now go back in church, as far as you want in American history, who would you say the greatest American pastor, preacher? Throw me a name, Jonathan. 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 You know, I do this, and I don't do this just in Reformed circles. I ask that question in church conferences of all different types. I never have heard any word but Jonathan Edwards is the first sound. Isn't that interesting? So then we have to ask the question, what made him so great? He read his notes, didn't he? You know, I was like, what... What what made him so amazing? Well, it has to do, I think, with the direction perhaps of his ministry. I like to think of him as one that has a had a three strand ministry, a good head of theology, you know, the truth and and proclaiming the depth of the truth and the preaching and so forth, teaching of the ministry, but also a heart, a passion for the lost and a passion for worship, but also the hands serving the community where they where they lived. So it was a, a good uh, connect, you know connection of the three. Well, if you look at, and again, very simplistically, church history, you know what's happened. You have in the 1920s, you have the liberal church come along, and next thing you know, you know, they do away with the gospel, and so what's left for them is the physical. So they start saying, we've got to help people physically. What happens to the rest of the church? The rest the church bolts and says, that's what they do. We take care of the spiritual. So, you know, okay, liberals do this, and we do that, and we're, we're part of the head and the heart then over time what's happened in the latter years we all know the story there's been a great division between head and heart and now you've got churches that boy they're passionate about worship and they're passionate about about uh, winning souls but if you look for the truth in those places in any depth and any solid discipling teach they don't even want to go there they say "Uh, uh-uh, that's controversial that, that causes people not to want to come to church and not want, no let's just keep it and so it's very very soft 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 church in terms of teaching and so forth the head is almost gone but the heart is there and then we've got churches and unfortunately like many of our pca churches that you go to and you say you know they're not really influencing the community so much and and the truth of it is there may not have been anybody saved there in the last 5 years and probably no one ever smiled in that church in 4 or 5 years so it can't be that that worshiping of a community you know so but, boy, the truth is just there. It's got every single I-dotted, T-crossed. It's good. What's that? a church of the head. And so now our people usually have to leave our church, go to a new community, and they have to make a decision. Do I find a church of the head? Do I find a church of the heart? Or do I find a church of the hand? And I told my friend there, I said, new friend, I said, you know, I think it may be that we have a, a blend of the head and the heart. You know, we haven't tried to, you know, take down the truth we, we're solid trying to teach the depth of the truth but we got a heart and passion for worship and so forth and so on and i said unfortunately where we're missing is in the hand and that's what led us to say in our 25th the difference in our church from this day forward will be a church of influence and we're adding the hand to the head and heart and we and we have gone to everything imaginable to try to make that happen and, and it's been a huge change in our church huge change so those are uh, very important. Next? Yes, you can. Uh, back on point one, which I, I mean, I agree with you and everything. How do you discern between what you might call exuberant fantasizing in order to appear spiritually healthy versus the actual will of God in a matter? Great. In other words, I could see a lot of people. Yeah. Did, did everybody hear that? How do you tell the difference between. It, it, I, I'll tell you this, I had a, a great uh, lesson uh, from an uh, uh, assistant pastor when I was uh, working under Jim Baird in, in uh, Macon, Georgia at the time. Um, uh, Dr. G. Allen Fleece, I don't know if many of you know that name, but Dr. Fleece was working on the staff there. And and the elder group that I was privileged to sit in on at that time as a, kind of an intern uh, had the debate about something that was faith-oriented, and several of the elders were arguing that's foolishness. That's not faith. That's foolishness. And the others saying, No, that's faith. We need to to do it, and so forth. And and uh, and Dr. Fleece was there, and and, and, and uh, Jim Barrett asked him, said, Would you address this for us? And I'm, and, it, and I remembered it forever. He said, You know, there is a fine line of distinction between the two, because to some something will appear this, and the other appear that. But he said the issue is. What do you, in your heart of hearts, think God would say to this? Do you think if he were in here, he'd say, let's go for it. I, I, that honors me. You attempt it. Go ahead. Or you know this is for the wrong motive. You know this isn't the right thing. You know this is foolishness. And What do you really think he would say to that? And then you make a, a judgment and you move along, you know, because nobody knows for sure. But I, I'll tell you, I, I, for me, I remember asking... Um, um, Oh, goodness. Uh, know the name man's name. I, I can't think of it now. Anyway, uh, a man now in his 90s that's a uh, um, Methodist. Uh, oh, what? Uh, all the... Huh? Lyle Schaller. Y'all know the name Lyle Schaller, perhaps. And I got to know him years ago. And what a man of wisdom, you know? Uh, but So uh, I was trying to figure this out. How do you know this, you know? And, and uh, I... I I was trying to get the whole church on board with the direction of vision and getting them to own it and so forth. And, and uh, so what I was doing was asking everybody's input from the leadership and the elders, and what do you think? And everybody had a different idea, and once everybody stayed their idea, they wanted their idea, and now everybody was, had different ideas. And, oh, my goodness, and finally we worked through it. And, and I happened to, to talk to Lyle Schaller, and I said, look, this was the hardest thing in the world to try to get people on a faith mindset altogether, you know. How do you do that? And I'll never forget, he said, Well, totally opposite about how you did it, for sure. That was that was very, very stupid what you did. That that you never go about it that way. But he used the analogy. He said, You know what you do? You gotta go to the mountain. You go to the mountain and spend time with God. You're the leader. You're a leader of leaders, true. They have the authority over you, but you go to the mountain. And when you believe God has spoken to your heart, this is the direction. Then does mean it's the will of God. You go back to your leadership and you say, here's what I think God would have us to do. And when they say, we don't agree, go back to the mountain again because you may have misunderstood. You may have not heard the Lord well. We're all fallible, you know, so you go back and you may say, yeah, I tweaked that a little bit. Come back. What do you think about this? And he says, if they go, no, you may want to go to the mountain one more time, but probably you need to offer your resignation because... You know where God's leading your heart and where you feel you've got to give leadership and your passion and so forth. And if, if they're not on board, you're going to always have problems. But, but so I took that approach from that point on and I'd say, the leadership said, yeah, you go to the mountain. So they give me weeks a year, a week at a time. I'd say, you go away, you think, you pray, you pre- prevent, you know prepare, come back and you we'll vote you down if we don't agree. But I think that's how you do it. And it starts with a leadership and I have to come back with a compelling belief of why I think God says so and see if they agree. And if they do, then you move along. We did a relocation of the church years ago and somebody came up to me in the middle of it and they said, well, how do we know this is the will of God? How do we know it's the will of God? And I looked at him and I said, oh, it's 100% sure this is the will of God. God wants us to to, uh, go about this relocation plan. And he said, how in the world... Do you know that's the will of God? And I said, oh, very simple. Our elders said, do it. They voted. There's the authority of God, you know. It's the will. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to fail. What we're doing may be stupid, but we're doing the right thing. You know, it may end in failure, but we'll be better off because of our failure because the elders said, this is what we believe. And we prayed and we decided, let's move along. So, okay, good question. Number four. I'm going to have to read my bigger thing here. I can't read this need some light up here. Uh, they are intentional about making mature and equipped followers of Christ who make mature and equipped followers of Christ. Um, you know, I have spoken on that time and time again, discipleship, and, and we have stuff recorded there, and we have staff here as Charles uh, with our Life and Life and a number of others, um, Bill back there. But uh, all I'll say on it is this. The single most important decision in direction of our church that's ever been taken without question by far was when we decided that we would move the heart of our church toward what we call life on life missional discipleship right then is when leadership development started blossoming that's when people began to be given their lives away impact was made i'm telling you it's not perfect by any stretch of imagination but it is so far better than any other plan of ministry in addition to the preaching of the Word of God that you're going to ever find. There's no question. When people start thinking it is my role as a more mature Christian now to take a handful of other people and in my life impact their lives, giving them the truth, but doing it around a life model. And, uh, you know, I, I, I met with a young pastor yesterday, that I had not met, and, and he said, you know, what, 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 if, what do you say is important? What do you... And I said, you know what? There are three things. You just give yourself to these three things for the rest of your life and uh, you're going to be okay. The ministry will be good. I said, outside your family, you know, whether you have a family or not or how much or how old they are, but you've got to deal with your family. It's a priority. But outside of that, you, you be a sincere worshiper of God. You worship God daily. Part of your every day, you worship God. Number two... You be a, and hear the word, faithful, not necessarily fruitful. You may not be gifted, but a faithful disciple maker, meaning mix it up with lost people all the time. Mix it up with lost people. Always be meeting with lost people. Always know lost people. Always be trying to witness lost people. And then number three, you be an effective disciple trainer. Always have a few people that you're investing your life in their life for the sake of their maturity that they can multiply in the lives of other people. You just keep that going all of your life, and you do that. And I said, now... do you know anybody 70, 75 years of age or older than meets that description that does all three of those? And he thought, this is a young pastor, he thought and he said, um, he lives in the, the state of Alabama, he thought and he said, one man, who's that? Frank Barker? I said, yep. Uh, name some others. I can't name any others said, do you find yourself wanting to be like... No, actually, he, met another, he mentioned another man, two men that I know who I would agree with. And I said, do you find yourself wanting to be like those two guys? Absolutely. He said, then why wouldn't you want to have those three characteristics of your life marking you for a lifetime so that when you're 75 or 80, people will be saying, that's the type of life I want. He said, there's the answer right there. And then I said, now, the way you make that happen, I give you three words. These are These are my little... These are my words. I just think these are so important. I said, number one, simplicity. Keep it simple. Keep everything simple. I don't care if people think I'm simple-minded, because I am. You know, and if I weren't, I wouldn't mind them thinking that. If simple is what I'm characterized by, it's because that's what's effective. I'll promise you, it's, it's simple. You know, I, I could show someone how to stay in physical condition, in really good physical condition, with five minutes a day. Four minutes a day. No doubt in my mind. I can tell anybody. Here's how you can stay in physical condition. Four minutes a day. But you have to do it every day for four minutes. Every day of your life. You don't do it just... You do it every, every, every day. Year in, year out, year out. Watch what happens. Really? Yeah, it's like, you know, the old adage. Everybody, you know, way, way, way uh, overestimates what they can do in a year. But they way underestimate what they can do in a lifetime. It's amazing what can happen in a lifetime. So you just keep it simple, which gives you the next word, which is repetitious. You can do it repeatedly over and over and over. So I say if it's your personal worship, don't have this incredibly complex way of worship that is so amazing that you can do it for at least a week before you burn out. Why don't you do something very small, very simple that can be repeated Every day, every day, every day. And some of those days are glorious days and some of them are kind of routine. But nevertheless, it's an everyday thing. And you do that year in and year out, year in and year out. Something happens to your heart when you agree. But we, no, no, we got to make it too complex. It can't be repeated. If it's uh, how you share your faith, have a simple way to share your faith. Don't make it so complex that nobody can do it or you can't do it over and over. Do the same thing over and over. And you see people come to faith. It's just repeat, repeat, repeat. And then the last is model whatever you do, model it. Don't just do it. Do it in the presence of others for the sake of their good, and let them learn from you. And that modeling just begins to multiply, multiply, multiply. And next thing you know, a lot of people are benefiting from your life of simplicity and repetition. So, enough on that. Um, next is number five. They equip their people to appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh wow! I- I'll make a prediction. Sometime do this with your church. Say, or or with a group, of small group, or Sunday school class, or whoever, just for uh, uh, an experiment. Do this. These people out of your church, all right, say, how many of you in the last month have consciously, in some form, very consciously appropriated the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Ask them to raise their hand, and you will be shocked to see how few people raise their hand. see, say, isn't that interesting? Now, as I read the scriptures, walk in the Spirit, and you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Faith. Wait, now, wait. Those are the most... Who doesn't need love? Who doesn't need peace? Who doesn't, who, how many people are staying up at night, can't sleep because of, you know, anxiety, and well, don't I need peace? And you can go through every one. Well, it says, walk in the Spirit, which means to appropriate the power of the Spirit, Well, why Why wouldn't you do that? Now, do you have to consciously appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit in order to appropriate? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that any less than can you pray without consciously praying? Apparently so if it says pray without ceasing because you can't just be in a constant prayer, a formal prayer. But wouldn't it be odd to a Christian to say, do you pray? Yeah, I just never consciously pray. You'd say, well, amidst your praying without ceasing, you're consciously having prayers, aren't you sure? Well, why wouldn't we consciously appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit, particularly when we're tempted, when we're going through hard times and needs and so forth? Why wouldn't we do it? People have to know how to appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit. So finally, and I always try to throw in a little something, not always, but usually week to week about, you know, the power of the Spirit and this, that, and the other, but you can't teach on it every week. So what I did is I, I finally did a 17-minute a message on how to appropriate the power of the holy spirit and put it on our website and you can go to perimeter.org pope and there's just a few things on there that i think i want to keep giving to people and i'll say to the church by the way i can't really walk through it but you got to appropriate the power of the holy spirit for what we've talked about today go on perimeter.org pope and make sure you remember how to appropriate and keep that part of our discipleship every year appropriate the power of the holy spirit appropriate the power of the holy spirit so critically important so critically important Next, six, uh, they emphasize the marriage of grace and duty. Well, this is the hot topic among the PCA right now, isn't it? You know, how much grace, how much duty, da-da-da-da-da. You know, I'm going to put it very simply. Here's my, my opinion is, after meeting with people on both sides of the argument, I don't think theologically we're disagreeing, but only to a small degree. There's a little bit of difference, I think. I think it is a... I think it is a very practical aspect of the challenge, the problem we're facing. Here would be a balanced walk. Would you agree? I take a right foot forward, and then I take a left foot forward. And I do that repeatedly, and I'm in a balanced walk. I would like to suggest that the right foot takes the first step, and that is always a step of grace. But when you take a step and your weight moves forward to grace... It will have to follow with the duty that comes along. True grace. Response is a heart of obedience and following, right? And so holiness and sanctification as we want to be understanding, biblical sanctification. Well, we know that if you go over here on the extreme one side, you've got a, uh, a side of, of uh, uh, let's take antinomianism. You know what antinomianism says? Well, there is no law and what is that that is a hop 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 on one leg you can make some motion and distance but you're not going to go very far very well right it's not it's not balanced you can go over here to legalism on the right and that's a hop on the right foot and it's hop 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 i don't think we've got legalists in the pca i don't think we have antinomians not in a theological sense i haven't heard anybody says i don't believe in grace or i don't believe in obedience So, okay, we're not technically theological, either one. But there is a, somewhere in between this balance and this extreme and balance and that extreme, and this is what it looks like in a practice. They hear the pastor say, gospel, 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 grace, 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 gospel. Oh, by the way, and you need to obey, and it's gospel, 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 grace, grace, grace. And then you hear these other people on the other side that say, "This is what you got to do, and you got to stop, and you got to start, and you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to." And by the way, it's God's grace that does it. And by the way, you got to do it, you got to stop, you got to go, you got to get it, you know. And so, but their, their practice is an emphasis so much on one over the other that it gets us back to me to the historic problem we've had in the PCA about the issue of, of uh, reformed theology and the hyper calvinist versus or the TRS, whatever you want to call them. And I never could. i meet with people that maybe be an extreme, in my opinion, to one end. They think I'm extreme to the other end. And we talk and say, you know, we actually agree with the same theology, don't we? It's just, you know, one of us is talking this amount and others this amount and bringing it into everything versus bringing it into some things. And it's just, I think the real issue today, you know what I think it is? I think it's a sociological or maybe a psychological issue for us today. More than a the theological. I think it is. And here's where I think it's coming from. It's coming from a generation who have perceived any kind of duty as a means to acceptance. And it's coming through the way parenting has been done, the way the way school has been done, the way sports has been done, and you achieve and you're accepted. And rather than seeing it as the fruit of you know, uh, of acceptance. They see it as the means of acceptance. And I've got to be dutiful. I've got to do it. And they don't, you know, you've heard the statement, a man's morality will dictate his theology. A man's psychology and a man's sociology will dictate his theology very easily too if you're not very, very, very careful. And I think sociologically, like there's a man that wrote me and he says, I can't say you don't preach grace because I know you do, but I'm tired of hearing you telling us what we have to do. Just tell me about what God's done for us. Just tell me how much I'm loved. I've heard enough of that all my life. All I need to hear, and I say, no, not all you need to hear. You need to also hear the balance of both, you know. And I knew it was coming out of a painful parenting experience, and that's what happened. We go from extreme to extreme. But I think it's got to be a good balance in marriage between those two. Um, Number seven, they destroy the ministry idols of tradition and preference. I spoke on this at the... GA a few years ago, out of 1 Corinthians 9, becoming all things to all people and so forth, that I might save some. And uh, maybe this story says it as well as any. Well, before I tell the story, I think probably one of the greatest challenges that the PCA has is we have preferences and traditions that we have now made idols, meaning if we don't have them, we can't be happy i can 't worship without that is that a biblical man no it 's a tradition we 've had uh, it 's a type of song we 've always used i't i, I can 't I can't worship i can 't this i can 't be happy i can 't be satisfied that 's idolatry right so and often our idolatries are uh, are of good things right very good things so you 've got you know worship styles and music whatever it may be program styles, and if we don 't have it we can 't be happy well until The church says, you know, I'll give up anything to see people come to faith, as Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 9. So I go to a church, a very large, noted church. You would probably all know the name of the church, Um, and it uh, it is not a PCA church. But uh, I go to this church and ask to speak. They say, would you speak to our staff? Would you speak to our, our officers? And then will you speak to our church about missional living how do we reach lost people There was a church that we're growing we're a large church very large church we are growing but we're only growing by reaching christians everybody wants to come to our church so it's just you know piling on from other churches and we're not seeing anybody come to faith so i speak to the staff their heart was all there yes whatever it takes mentality i get to the elders on saturday and i walk in and this is a very formal high church and i walk in to the saturday morning meeting and i've got i'm dressed like i am now which i thought was appropriate And I walk in and every man had on a suit and tie on Saturday morning. (laughs) And I looked and I thought, this is amazing because they had entered into the church building they had to have a suit on. So you know what Sunday looked like. And, uh, So I just simply asked the question. I said, can I ask you a question? Do y'all really want to reach lost people? Because if you don't, this is a wasted time anyway. Do you really want to reach lost people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you willing to do what it takes as long as you don't have to cross biblical grounds to you know, to reach lost people? Yeah, yeah, I got the corporate nod. And I said, well, good. So let me just ask the question. And I start off, I say, "If, if you knew that scores and scores, hundreds of people could come to faith in Christ by you making the simple change of everybody wearing a collared shirt on Sunday. No coat and ties. Would you shed your coat and ties? Which I don't think you need to do to win people, quite frankly. But if that were the case, would you do it? Boy, there was this like, ooh, can we <laughs> Can we do that? I mean, is that even right? <clears throat> and then you could kind of hear what they're thinking. I hate to see people go to hell because of the way we dress, so... Yeah, yeah. So, so, y'all say, yes, you would do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I do the next level. Finally, I said, let me ask you this. If you had to bring drums into your church, and you had to dr- bring an ensemble and no choir, and guitars, and electric guitars, by the way, and you would see thousands of people, hundreds, of whatever, come to faith in Christ, incredible new ministry, would you do that? I could not get the corporate nod. It was like, come on now. Now you're asking the the unreasonable now. And all you could hear was, well, I just don't think we need to do that. I said, no, 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 no. I'm not saying I think you need to. In fact, I would say you shouldn't do that in this church. But if it would be the case, would you? And and I realized that church is never going to win people to faith because they don't have the heart attitude that says, you know, at 1 Corinthians 9, I'll become all things, to all people, which doesn't mean compromising truth, obviously, that I might win some. So the leadership of the church has to deal with that one or it ain't going to happen. How much time do I have? Where would my clock go? Oh, can I see that a second? I I'll to make sure I don't go over time here. All right. We're going to make it. Uh, number eight, is it? Number eight, they don't compromise spiritual nutrition for the sake of simplicity and growth. There's a b- book that came out, many of you have read, called Simple Church, and I'm not against the book or its content, but I hate that title. Is there such a thing as a simple church? And if you try to make church simple, now, if the title were simpler, maybe so, but if you try to make the church simple, you're not going to be healthy, Right? Tell me, do we have a simple or a complex theology? Yeah. If you want to do evangelism, discipleship, missions, and keep going all the things, children's, all the things you need to be doing as a church, is that going to be a simple philosophy of ministry or is it going to be a complex one? It's going to be complex. Yeah. Part, some of our biggest challenges as leadership is dealing with the complexity of all the offerings of our church that we think are vitally important to be healthy and that we don't, shouldn't get... But, the point is now the new thought of church is no you do two things you do a worship with adults and then you do your children's worship and youth worship all that and then you get people in small groups and there's your church there's church keep it simple i say well keep it simple but don't keep it healthy doing that you know you got to think no how do you don't don't give all that up don't compromise spiritual nutrition for the sake of of growth or simplicity number nine very similar they provide healthy environments for worship and feeding, rather than environments for entertainment and self-help inspiration. I think the, the seeker church has finally seen its destiny. And why? It was this idea: if we entertain them, if we do this, then they'll come, and we'll have a growing church. It'll be. But they saw the effects of what happens when you do that. Uh, you, you don't need to do that. Uh, you can provide healthy environments and uh, for worship and feeding and and so forth and you know I I shared with our church in a message just recently I said I said you know this is not going to be an enjoyable popular message I said because what people want to hear today is tell me what I need to do in order to get better tell me what I need to do to have the better family tell me what to do to have the better emotional stability tell me what to do and and there are places that we need to explain and give practical help. This is what you need to do. I'm not against that. But I said, you know, the ministry that that has primarily delivered that message is going to be probably a very popular church, but not a very healthy church. Because if you want life change, what you want is a steady diet where the majority message is on one of two things. How wretched The soul is in and of itself. We call it the depravity of man, right? You better understand how helpless and hopeless we are in and of ourselves, which is talking about the nature of man, who man is. Number two, you talk about the glory of God and who he is and his ways and his truth. And and as you get to know those two together, it has a powerful impact in enabling you then to be able to do what you need to do. So you've got to have the weight of the messages falling on those two themes, not on the third theme of here's what you do. So you've got to be, make sure that you're, you're keeping that balance uh, in those areas. By the way, I, I tell people, you, some of you may have heard the illustration about the professional golfer that came to me and he says, I need help. Uh, would you meet with me? I hear you meet with people to help them in their lives. And I... I said, "Well, yeah. Well, what, what, what can I do?" And he says, "He says, uh, well, I'm try- I, I don't, want, don't want you to get me wrong. I am a very, very, very good man." <laughs> and I said, "Okay, good." And he says, "However, I am a. Uh, I'm having an affair right now. My wife and uh, I've got a wonderful wife and children. I, I you know, I, I hate to. Lo- I mean, I, I lose so much. I don't know why I can't get rid of this woman, but I just, I love her. I just want to be with her and." I'm trying so hard, but don't get me wrong. I'm a good person. I don't want you to get me wrong. And I said, okay. And he said, and by the way, I'm an alcoholic and it's going to take my career and everything else if I can't quit drinking. I'm just, oh, so I just, but again, I don't want to buy saying that. You think I'm not a good man. And so anyway, after I'd heard all these wretched things he had done, <laughs> I said, can I ask you a question? You know as much about golf as anybody in the world. I said, true or false, if you've got a terrible grip, posture, and alignment, Grip, posture, and alignment. Is it true you can practice all of your life and never become a really good golfer? He said, that's true. I said, is it also the reverse true that if you have a perfect grip, posture, and alignment and you don't know anything about the swing but you just start playing golf regularly and you kept the three perfect all the time, you would be a really good golfer over time? He said, that's correct. I said, well, the same is true in life. We have a grip, posture, and alignment, don't we? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, well, your grip is your view of yourself. Your posture is your view of God. Your alignment is your view of the world and life in which we live. I said, would you like for me to give you a diagnostic in each of those? Like you would look at my grip and say, no, your grip's too, too strong here. Do too... you want me to give you a... Yeah, yeah. I said, okay, let's start with your, your grip, which is your view of, of self, which I knew was wrong. And I said, I put A, B, C, and D down on paper. I said, A, a man, uh, God, uh, a man is good... B, man is good with a little bad. Number three, man is bad with a little good. Number four, man is bad. What do you think? Well, what do you think he chose like every other person I've ever used this with? What do they say? Good with a little bad. Yeah. And I said, well, you got a terrible grip. Your grip is way wrong because you missed the one that's correct based on what God says. Okay? Now, I'm coming from what God says. You know that. that's why you came to me. So. Anyway, so then I said, "You want to check your other?" I took the other two, gave him four. He missed on all three of them. I said, "Do you realize what you're doing? You're out on the range swinging and practicing every day, trying to get better with a terrible grip, posture, alignment, and you know you're never going to get better." Now, if you would like to get better, I can help you change those three. Then, by the way, that's what discipleship is. When I'm meeting with guys, I'm working on the grip, posture, alignment every day. Every week I meet with guys, I'm going, "All right, let's get the grip, let's get the posture, let's get the alignment." But I'm talking about the view of God, the view of man. That's why our whole curriculum is dealing with those areas so that you're going to get a good grip and posture alignment. Three years of getting that grip, posture and alignment corrected, people start changing and say, Wow, look what's happening in my life. Yeah, what happened? You got your grip, posture alignment. Next. Um, what number's next? 10. Ten. They correctly steward the keys of the kingdom and of the sacraments. Um, I got to be quick here. Um, let me say that I think we're at a point where many churches today that might have great visibility and popularity may not rightly be considered a church. And I've come to grips with that. That I appreciate the ministry God's given in these places. But we had a, a lady uh, in our church, a young girl in our church, getting married. That's the daughter of an elder, been in our church all growing up, and now she's marrying a guy who loves the Lord and. They're going to a, a different church uh, in a different part of town where they live. And, um, and they said, would you marry them? Well, the <coughs> church has to give me permission to marry because uh, we have so many people that want to get married. I, I was doing too many weddings, and so it has to be related. Well, this is a d- close long-term relationship with this family, and I knew they'd say yes. I said, well, yeah, uh, but I, they have to fill out this little form. And they fill out the form, and it says, you know, are you a me- what member of the church? He said, we're not neither members of the church. Our church has no membership. Well, let me ask you, if they've never had anyone holding the keys of the kingdom and understand it. And so I said, how do I marry you? I mean, I, I, I might as well hold the keys myself. And you know, the people of our church are not hearing what it means to hold the keys to the kingdom. I mean, when you, when you go to your Matthew 16 passage, what does he mean when he says, I give to you the keys of the kingdom? And so I'm meeting with a one of the leaders of a major church that is not, does not do membership. And I said, I want to ask you a question. What does it mean when the scripture says, I give to you the keys of the kingdom? What do you think the keys are? He had no clue. And I said, don't the keys lock to keep people out? Don't the keys unlock to let people in? Don't the keys unlock to let people in, out, because they no longer believe in Jesus or no longer follow or obedient and so forth? Don't... Yeah, well, if, that's the, if the keys represent the authority of the church, who holds the keys? When he says, I give to you, the, who do you think gets the keys? Well, there's only three options. One is he gave it to Peter, and therefore we have a pope. We don't believe that. You know, the only two options left, and the option that the 99% of churches today are holding is every Christian holds the keys. Oh, good, I'll discipline me when I'm bad. Are you serious? No. I'm not going to examine me to determine whether I'm a Christian. Somebody else needs to examine me to see if I'm a Christian. Should I have to be taking the table or not? Do I, I mean, somebody, there needs to be discipline, right? There needs to be oversight and authority. So, so with that, um, I, I tell my friend, I say, you know, you're believing that you hold the keys. It's always a plurality that holds the keys. So you don't hold the keys. He was talking to the Apostles. The authority of the church. And they laid hands on elders who have the authority of the church. And church, you have no authority in your church. You have no elders in your church. You have, you're a huge Bible study with incredible singing. <laughs> but that doesn't make you a church. You don't have the marks of a true church. If you go back to the Reformation, they wouldn't meet the marks of that, even though I don't think those marks are adequate. But still. So next. Um... Number 11, uh, they underscore as their. I uh, cannot read it. It's so dark up here. Need my glasses. They underscore all of their teaching with the realities of the authentic gospel of Christ and the only hope of glory. And uh, there, I, I'm, I'm just talking about. Uh, we don't have time. I'll skip that one. Um, and last one, they allow uh, their pastor to focus. Uh, on shepherding through his teaching, leading, and equipping. And I did a seminar on that one alone last year, so that's, uh, they've got that if you wanted to hear some of them. That's a pretty critical one, too, because pastors today are not being allowed to be the pastor God's called them to be, uh, meaning they can't lead, they can't equip, because everything else consumes their life, and they can't do the things that take the church to health. So that's a key piece right there.
0: You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.